Hi, hello and welcome. This is the Zonecast where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs and academics. And uh, today we have with us on the show, Naveh Shatweet. He is the co-founder and CEO of uh, Tribute. Uh, hi, Naveh. How are you? Welcome to the show. Hi, uh, I'm very well. Thank you very much. How about you? I am very good. I am very good. And I'm uh, uh, curious to learn more about you and also about your company. Uh, can you tell us about your professional and personal background? Yeah. So uh, I was born and raised in, uh, in Israel. My background is uh, in terms of academic education. is uh, I have a biomedical bachelor in engineering, biomedical uh, device uh, engineering. I grew up in that space of the medical device where I was exposed to uh, to the complexities of bringing a product to market where uh, different stakeholders, very large stakeholders, the academic institution, the hospital, and the industry uh, essentially collaborate on different levels. And the fact that they think and operate and, and, and work within different constraint systems and different incentive systems uh what revealed to me the, the difficulties of, of driving innovation forward. Uh, later, I went on to pursue an MBA, and while I was doing that, I worked part-time as, a, as, a, as an analyst for a technology transfer of the entity of a university. I'm actually an, an aggregate of several academic institutions, so it was like a, like a cluster type of thing, a little bit like Mars Innovation in Toronto, a similar entity in a different country. And, and again, I, I, was, I was shocked to see how the different incentives and, and thinking processes of academic researchers versus industrial entities who are thinking in quarterly reports and, and deliverables on, on, the industri- on the industry side versus the academic researchers who are thinking in terms of, of uh, impact uh, factor in publishing and, and you know, publish it or perish. These, these very conflicting uh, incentives Create inefficiencies if you look at the societal point of view. If, you, if you're thinking about, about knowledge as an asset, as a commons, it creates a, situa- a situation where less innovation is happening, or, or at best, it's happening slower than it could have if people would, would operate more openly. And this drove me to have a lot of conversations with, with friends and uh, you know faculty members and people from industry and venture capitalists, thinking about how this might change. And that is when I discovered the open science or open uh, knowledge movement. Um, and, uh, and, and so it got me thinking about, about the topic. And when I met my co, my current co-founders, uh, which, which we decided together to, to try to bring the openness as, 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 as an agenda into the world of innovation, the world of, the world of industry collaborating with academia, which is essentially the underlying agenda of, of, of the company of tribute. All right, perfect. Uh, can you tell us more about uh, Tribute, how the idea came about, and the uh, product and solution you offer? Yeah. So just on a high level, we started Tribute, me and my partners, because we believe knowledge, like I said before, uh, just doesn't work, or at least doesn't work efficiently. We believe that knowledge creation starts and ends with people, and that it must yield greater societal progress and, and, and benefits and dividends, if you will. Um, we believe that openness and collaboration are a key for accelerating the use of knowledge. But but when you think about the way they're created, uh, the incentives are misaligned. So so what we're trying to do is is harness the hunger of industry to innovate and harness their huge budgets and funding in order to drive a more thriving liquid, if you will, uh, uh, ecosystem of knowledge transactions and knowledge sharing and knowledge collaboration. 
And maybe through that, change the, the incentives of, of academic researchers at the top of the food chain of knowledge. So Tribute is a platform that automatically collects and analyzes and summarizes millions of pieces of evidence. That is, uh, uh, papers, patents, grants, funding from government, websites of, of uh, venture capital funds, websites of, of tens of thousands of startups, um, uh, clinical trials, and other sources, all news, news outlets. And we, we, we have a, an NLP engine that, that crawls all these sources on a daily basis, aggregates the knowledge from their indexes, the knowledge classifies it into different rich ontologies, technical, technological ontologies, and creates the ability to search and navigate the knowledge and innovation space in order to remove barriers and, and reduce costs of uh, executing competitive research on, on the industry side. Thus, hopefully, uh, making the whole process of innovating and collaborating, uh, lowering, lower, lowering the bar for collaboration and innovation between industry and academia. Salman? Hello? Oh, yes, uh, yes, uh, I was saying. So it is a platform for researchers and, um, but actually, no, it's, the platform is not for researchers. We do have academic institutions using the platform, but it's first and foremost for industry. Okay, um, industry. Okay. Yeah. First and foremost for industry. We started with small, you know, SMEs, if you will, small medium enterprises. We started with VCs, but very quickly now we're growing up to work with enterprise clients, uh, specifically the innovation managers, the scouting people, the technology innovation people, the ones who are looking outside of the organization in order to find opportunities to innovate and collaborate and find technologies they can either partner or experiment with or put on, on, on trials or pilots in order to drive growth for the company. That is where the money is. That is where the business is. And we're trying to bring that hunger and richness of, of resources into the game of innovation that also taps into academia. Mm-hmm. So... It is for the industry, and let's say if a particular uh, industry or company is w- working on a particular, let's say, technology, they can use this platform and its machine learning capabilities to find, collect, find, and summarize information that you mentioned, like um, articles and, and research and uh, funding grants and whatnot. So it kind of finds and... Uh, summarizes relevant information relating to the technology that you're working on? So, so the answer is yes, uh, but that is that is stuff that people already know how to do. I mean, summarizing information is, is a mundane job, and we're trying to help with that, but we're trying to do more than that. We're using AI and machine, uh, specifically uh, natural language processing, not only to summarize, but I, rather to find the most relevant pieces of evidence and mm-hmm. to have from them backwards, who are the entities, either companies or persons or institutions that are most active and most prolific and proficient in, in working on a field, on a topic? So say, for example, you're a food company and you're interested in, in expanding into new protein sources and, and you internally do, have a short list of, of uh, new potential uh, protein sources and you want to look at the activity, the economic, scientific, technological activity around each and every one of these food sources. So if you take one of them, I don't know, beans or chickpeas or sesame or whatever, doing 
a research that is multidimensional, looking at the clinical trials that the, the clinical trials that are in analyzing the metabolism and the, and the and the food value, and then looking at the startups that are trying to create innovation through that, and looking at who are the researchers actively doing science related to that food food vertical, and looking at the corporations that are in the supply chain management or 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 sourcing these things or producing actually actual end products out of these uh, verticals. Doing all that work is a lot of work. That is that, that is a lot of analysis. You spend hours, sometimes days. To do that, and what we provide is a very quick AI-driven uh, tool that, that at least the initial phase of sorting out and, and summarizing and, and organizing and ranking and scoring the the most relevant entities, researchers, trials, hospitals, uh, companies, venture capital funds—all the entities are associated with the work uh, universe of, let's say, for example, Sesame or Chickpeas. We do that in seconds. That is our product, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, incredible. And um, are you currently selling your product? Do you have any clients? Yeah, the company is uh, is already uh, working with with some uh, clients uh, across the world. Uh, so our our original we started you know design partnerships with small uh, with small and medium venture funds, venture capital funds. We, we used our initial offering to find key opinion leaders. Uh, they they wanted you know such people to either do diligence on companies they were looking at, so they wanted the most prominent academic researcher w- within a geography, or the most relevant doctor within a discipline of uh, some surgical whatever application that that they were trying to analyze. And now we're moving up into corporations, so we're working with the executives who are responsible, the teams associated with the, exec- with the executive office of a company that is associated with corporate development or innovation or growth that is oriented towards the technology and the science and the solution, not growth that is financial. So it's like you can imagine our tool as being, we like, you know, tongue in cheek, calling our tool the Bloomberg terminal for technology and innovation versus, you know, stock trade. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's interesting. And um, where did you find this company? Did you find uh, start this company in Canada? Um, and are you doing business like in Canada or internationally, globally? Uh, tell us more. No. So so the company was founded in Israel as part of the Tel Aviv University uh, Acceleration uh, Venture Capital Fund. So it's a VC with with workspace very similar to Mars Innovation. And we partner globally because Israel is a tiny market. It's not an interesting market to sell in. Uh, we definitely partner and, and do design partnerships locally, but we see the world as our market, not Israel. And one of our first clients was actually Mars Innovation, which we, we worked with very closely. Uh, and we partner with other entities in, uh, in Canada in order to grow. Uh, our, our, our go-to-market strategy is, is twofold. We either sell directly to analysts in different various levels of the corporation, or we work with innovation consultants, uh, people who provide consultancy and strategic uh, thinking services to executive co- to companies to the executive layer, and they use our product. So for them, our product is a is a is a is a sell accelerant because they they come to sell their services augmented with AI and very attractive you know dashboards that have a lot of concurrent knowledge. So they look better when they sell their services, but also. 
Uh, it costs, it saves them a lot of cost, a lot of, a lot of expen- expenses because their research phase, when you, when you do consulting on innovation, typically there's, there's a long research phase between each interval of work with your client. So that phase becomes cheaper for them because it, it is less labor and it's way faster. So they can do two things. They can spend less time on analysts and they can uh, work with the client on, on shorter cycles. Between each meeting and each uh, brainstorming session or think tank session, they, they, they get back to the client again and again faster. So we partner with these with these consultants, and they help us, and we help them to get higher into the organizations and win and win bigger and bigger contracts. Mm-hmm. And um, I also want to talk about the social impact of AI uh, and machine learning and automation. Um, obviously. Um, AI and machine learning definitely uh, offers a lot of value in terms of being able to perform and automate tasks efficiently. But uh, do you think on a social level it has a a negative impact in terms of uh, reducing the number of jobs and people that are needed uh, because now we have a machine learning algorithm which can do the job of multiple people? And uh, it's more cost effective. It's more efficient. Um, and I know there is a there is an argument that you know yeah it helps create jobs because you need researchers and developers and engineers and scientists to actually write the code and have this kind of technology. But on a um, do you think the uh, at a bigger picture uh, it takes it more jobs than it creates and what do you feel about the social impact of AI? So first of all, I'm not a, an economist, so I, I, I'm not qualified I, to, to say anything, you know, empirical about, about your question, which is, I think, a, a critical, important, vital question to ask. Uh, so I'm, I will answer like you asked it. I will answer what I feel about it, not what I know, what I know for a fact about it. Mm-hmm. So I, that AI has two different, very important questions that, that, that concerns that we need to be mindful about. As far as, I mean, that's my, my own agenda. I think that we need to think about jobs, like you said. And I think there's another element that we, we should be aware and mindful about, which is the biases introduced by these algorithms. Uh, mm. which I'll do in a second. So, so as to the jobs part, from, from our little, you know, our little expertise, our, our little tiny piece of the universe where we operate in is a process of managing innovation. We work with clients who are Typically within a big organization, a big corporation and, and managing the innovation process for a big company such as, I don't know, McDonald's or, or an, uh, like Coca-Cola or one of these huge corporations, managing innovation within an entity such as that is, is to some extent a political process more than it is a technological process. So what, what I think specifically with our kind of AI and our kind of job that we're trying to solve is that we're, we will actually free the people doing this work to focus more on the relationship management and the interpersonal process, which is vital to the success of an innovation process. Because you need to do a lot of convincing and lobbying and selling and, and working and, 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 you know, and deploying technology and, and making sure that people understand what to do with it. That is an, a human task. True, maybe elements of that task might be removed from the human laborer and, and become automated, such as you know, uh, making, writing a tutorial. So, you know, in the past you would write, you would write up a, a document explaining 
Maybe today an AI can create a video to do that. I've seen products going that way. But, but then the person who typically spent three hours writing a document now can spend three hours training people or managing relationships. So, so I'm not sure if jobs are going to be lost on a net counting account, you know, when you do IV accounting, they will definitely change. People will do different things. But the question is open and we need to be mindful about it. Something that I personally am a little bit more concerned about is the bias because when you train AI algorithms, especially when you do do that with, based on, on, on existing data sets, for example, in our case, we try to, to ask, to answer the question, who is the most impactful researcher or the best, most qualified person to speak to about a technological topic? For example, let's just give a random example, stem cell research. So the way we do this is looking at the existing evidence, which is scientific literature and patents and funding and many other pieces of evidence. And one might argue that this is an objective way to do that because we're only looking at, at the data and, and nobody's looking at the person. You know, nobody's judging the person based on his, the color of his skin or the accent or his uh, pedigree or anything. But we all understand that that is not the case because naturally a researcher working on stem cell from Harvard is not the same as a researcher working on stem cells from Ryerson College in, 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 in Toronto. No disrespect to any specific college in Toronto. I'm just saying that a researcher from Harvard will naturally be well better funded, will be better published, and will be to some extent better known in his community than somebody from some community college somewhere across the Midwest of the United States or or some you know Lithuania or or some smaller country in Europe. Mm. And, and and so the data itself already bakes into the AI a bias. And my concern is how do we do how do we debias the data set? How do I make sure that I'm not missing out on a genius, brilliant innovator from, from some some side college somewhere that seems to be less competent because he has uh, a, a, you know twenty percent less pieces of evidence because he's published from a different college that is not as prestigious, or he received mm-hmm. funding, but the person itself might be brilliant. How do I measure that without any yeah. that is already in the data? That is one of our chief concerns as a company, and I, I will admit we do not have a, 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 an answer to that. It's, it's an open question. So I guess I guess the so far no one has been able to figure out how to rectify the bias that uh, machine learning and AI can uh, can bring. I don't know if nobody has been able to rectify, but I know it's an issue. So you, you know you have you have stories about, for example, algorithms in banks judging whether or not to give somebody a mortgage for his house, and and they look at the zip code of that person, and maybe the zip code doesn't tell the, the computer if, if you're African-American or white Caucasian, but the, so because, you know, you're not a person, you're only a number, but the zip code itself is highly correlated with the population in a certain neighborhood. And maybe now because of that, somebody is not receiving a mortgage. So, so, so the actual, the actual algorithm is also uh, biased against some portion of the population versus another portion of the population. So, so these, this is just another example that is not within my field. I'm just, I'm just saying it's a concern. I, I, it's not a concern of ours alone. A lot of people are working on this. Um, I don't know what the solution is. I just know that we are, we're, 
you know, thinking about this long and hard. We're trying to first, I think the first thing we should think about is how do we even measure what, what kind of bias we already introduce? I mean, how do we measure the bias in order to at least maybe correct for it? Because I don't even know how biased the, the original data is. So it's really hard to correct something that you don't know the volume of. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, issue that you have mentioned. And I guess the issue of bias per se is not necessarily new because as you were mentioning, uh, based on ethnicity and based on accent and, and, and prestige, bias can happen and humans can can be influenced by those surface level or superficial factors like ethnicity and prestige and, and whatnot. And they might not be uh, necessarily completely data driven, right? Uh, and, 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 and maybe, maybe there is a valid reason to assume that, you know, a Harvard researcher is better than other researchers, or maybe there's no valid reason. And this is just because we tend to favor certain people or certain organizations more favorably. We, we get skewed. So I guess this, this, um, issue of bias is all, already exists among humans. Yeah. And, and, and I guess, I guess with machine learning, it seems like it might be there, but maybe, maybe those algorithms are less biased than humans. Well, so my argument is that they're, they by themselves are not biased or not biased. They're just algorithms. But when they use data sets that are, that have been created by humans, they inherit the bias from the data. Mm. That is my claim. You, you, you transfer the bias from the data to the algorithm. So now the data set is contaminated with bias. I'm not saying anything about Harvard. I, I would say that by and large, the average researcher from Harvard is probably way better than the average researcher from a, from a small college. But that's only okay. the average, right? So what about, you know, what about yeah. the single person? The single person is never, is never average. It's a person. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's where individuals can vary. From the average, uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, have you uh, had any experience with the the innovation ecosystems in Canada? I think previously you mentioned Mars. So tell us about which innovation uh, ecosystems uh, you're a part of, and what's your experience been like here? So so my experience working with so first of all, I think that what what Mars has tried to do in in Toronto was brilliant. Uh, I, I mean, kudos to the city of Toronto. I, I don't, I'm not even sure about the history of the organization, but, but, uh, the concept of having, uh, uh, a centralized, um, you know, driver of, of activity that, that is, that is tasked with KPI that is measured on success around economic activity and collaboration and, and essentially economic growth with, through innovation. That is a brilliant way to do things. And I, I'm specifically, I'm from Israel. I worked with Mars Innovation with, with their management, with their directing. I mean, I, I, we sold the product to the CEO. By the way, he was up until a few months ago, he was an Israeli. I, I'm not sure about, I, I don't know the new one, but the previous one was an Israeli. And um, a person who was, who managed uh, the technology ecosystem of a very large hospital in, in Jerusalem. And, and, and he's, he's a, he's an innovative, Brilliant person who, who contributed to the success of, 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 of the success of Toronto as, as a, as a thriving ecosystem of innovation. I think that the, the model that you tried to do there and pretty much succeeded as being, you know, versions of that model are, are duplicated all across the world. Uh, we as a company, we sell all across Europe and, and, and even the Far East. 
So, for example, Copenhagen uh, is is working, already has an entity that is very similar to Mars Innovation. Uh, Israel itself as a country is trying to operate in a way that is similar to Mars Innovation, because Israel is small enough to be like Toronto in a sense. Um, uh, we see this in Munich, in, in, uh, in the Hamburg in Germany. We see this, uh, I mean, all across Europe. So the model of, of, a, of a cluster of innovation that is sponsored by a coalition, various versions of a coalition between the industry and the local government and the universities, and providing space for entrepreneurs, providing uh, coaching and mentorship, providing um, a thriving economy, economical infrastructure for, for venture capitalists, capital funds to operate within. That is that is an amazing drive for innovation, and and the numbers can, do not lie. You see, you see the numbers, the number of companies coming up. Toronto, it's 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 eye-boggling. It's amazing. I have many friends who moved to Canada to start startups in in Toronto because of that beautiful, successful ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about your journey to Canada? What brought you to Canada? When did you come here? How long have you been here? And what's your experience been like? So, uh, I, I physically, I've been to Canada uh, in the context of this company once. Uh, I mean, the company started in late 2018, so we, we were there once. Um, it was an, a beautiful drive from Boston. <laughs> uh, so I was, in the, uh, I was driving up uh, north, and uh, uh, we, we went to visit McGill University and to try to... Uh, Duplicate the, the model we had very successfully started in Mars, in Mars Innovation with, with TAP actually. They changed their name to TAP. Toronto. I can't remember the acronym. Anyway, uh, we drove to Montreal to work, meet people with, 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 uh, uh, executives of, of the innovation, uh, in the technology transfer office of McGill. And I loved how, I mean, I, it felt very much at home for me because There's something about the, the diverse, international, laid-back, relaxed, smiling, friendly culture that, that was very, very appealing to me. What was less appealing to me was the fact that we were there in December, and I come from a, a very different climate. So I was shocked by the temperature. It was very, very brutal for, for me to experience the minus 12 degrees. I don't think I've ever been in that, that, that weather before, so it was quite painful. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, has the pandemic affected your uh, your business, and did you see any impact on sales and operations and the way you do business? So, like everybody, I would say the answer is yes. Everybody, we all experience change in the way we do business. We moved to become completely virtual. Um, so, in one sense, yes, because we moved home and we started operating from our home offices. And working uh, completely virtually, but at the same time, being an international, internationally focused company, uh, most of our business was already done virtually. Uh, we would, prior to the pandemic, we, we, we used to travel about every, you know, every two months or so. We would travel either to Europe or the United States or Canada. So, so we're not, we haven't been traveling for a few, for a lot of, for a long time. But, but, but that is the only thing I feel that is dramatically changed. In the company, everything else, you know, way more virtual, way more talks. Now, as, as to your question, as to your question about sales, um, there was a two months period starting in early March that you felt, we felt like everything is, was ground to a stop. Nobody made real decisions about purchasing. 
we had some churn with some clients that decided to shrink their expenses, um, but not anything, you know, too painful. It was, you know, you're always sad to lose the client, but it wasn't, you know, something that broke the bank. Uh, and, and I think late in April, we started seeing again that people, you know, the reality normalized and, and companies went back to start to thinking about going back to, you know, how, how do we operate in this new reality? So how do we make decisions? How do we uh, go through the sales process, which is typically, uh, you know, a, a process that, you know, people have to see the product and then you have to discuss and then you have to decide. So that came back to a semblance of normality or at least a new normal. And I, I, I feel like we're back to normal now. I mean, it's not the, the things are different in the sense that most of our, our initial engagements are, are virtual versus before when we met people in conferences and then started going virtually. So that is, that is the only thing that changed. Uh, the, the initiation be, moved to the virtual world, but everything else pretty much the same and, and recently pretty much back to normal. And on a personal note, how did the uh, pandemic affect you personally and how are you managing this time? And do you have any reflections from this, this difficult period that we uh, had to endure? So I think, I think my reaction to that would be more, I mean, it's more of my journey as an entrepreneur, as, as you know, as a startup founder, um, working from home, uh, for, for such a long time, forced, uh, some, I would say like more mindfulness about what is the, what are the ramifications of being so engaged in your work? Because when, when you wake up in the morning and go to the office and you're engaged in your work, you're somewhere else. So you don't really see the effect on, on your, on, on my, my, my wife, my children doing this from home. You cannot avoid, you see the effects because I mean, literally you close the door because you're starting a call. So, so your son is looking at you and you're closing the door because you need to start a phone call. You can't avoid this. So, so I think what it does, what it did for me, it, uh, forced a, a very hard, long look at, at, at how I balance the things. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I don't think I would say I re, realign my priorities or I'm going to close the company now or going to do things dramatically different. It's just very much more aware of the impact and it makes you, you know, Think twice before you do something. Maybe I can take this call tomorrow. Maybe this thing can wait to after the weekend. Uh, you know, to dedicate specific time for different things. And I think, I think that was important. I actually, I think that was a very good effect for me personally. Mm-hmm, that's, that's amazing. Um, well, Navit has been very nice uh, speaking with you and learning about uh, yourself and also about uh, your uh, company. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, how can people find you? You want to share your website? Yeah. So uh, we're, we're we have a website online. It's a uh, tribute That is spelled like a tree. T R E E B U T E dot I O. And everything else is linked from there. Blog, the Twitter account, and everything else. Perfect. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode and you find it to be engaging and insightful and you get a chance to learn from my tributes uh, story. And thank you so much for listening to Zonecast and stay tuned for more episodes.